This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Commerce Department has been dealing with the Internet and its implications since at least the mid-1990s, mainly through an obscure agency known as the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. My next guest worked there for many years, most recently as acting administrator. She's now a partner at the law firm Wilkinson Barker Nauer. Evelyn Romali joins me now. Ms. Romali, good to have you on. Tom, thank you so much. It's uh, great to be here with you. And I've been covering and following NTIA for many years myself, but just give us a quick reminder on what exactly the agency does. <laughs> Absolutely happy to, and I love that you called it obscure. It is a small agency within the Commerce Department. NTIA actually used to be a part of the White House and in the 70s was moved over to Commerce. And really its main responsibility is to be the president's advisor on information and communications technology issues. In addition to that, NTIA is the manager of the federal use of spectrum, so works with all of the federal agencies on that. We play a big role in broadband deployment across the nation. We have folks who focus on public safety communications, uh, but really that role in terms of advising the president, the secretary of commerce, that is our main focus. And does it also conduct the auctions of the spectrum? So no, actually, NTIA is not responsible for spectrum auctions. Uh, NTIA is an executive branch agency. Again, we manage the federal use of spectrum, but we work very closely with one of our partner agencies, the Federal Communications Commission, which is actually responsible for commercial use of spectrum. And it is the FCC that leads on the auctions. When you left, what were the big issues for spectrum, for federal use of spectrum? I mean, what was on the plate for NTIA? Because probably fair to say a lot of this is not overly politically driven. You would be surprised. (laughs) Just kidding. But spectrum for the agency. I mean, obviously, this is an area, the use of our airwaves nationally. You know, this is something that continues to be a very competitive space as we advance technologically in the U.S. and globally. And so really, as we're looking ahead to our economic future, where we're going to have connected cars and smart cities and smart ag and healthcare that's connected. The use of our spectrum is all part of that. And so in terms of what NTIA has been focused on, there has been a big push over the last several years to be able to free up enough spectrum, mid-band spectrum in particular, for 5G and other advanced services. So they're very focused on that. The Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, coming in, has made one of her priorities a national spectrum strategy. Obviously, some of the things that uh, that will be looking at is better coordination amongst federal agencies as well as the private sector in terms of how that spectrum is allocated and used. Really looking at science-based studies and research to make sure that decision-making related to how we're using spectrum, its efficiencies, its safety is based on real solid evidence. Uh, They're looking at things like workforce, just how we do the entire spectrum process more efficiently and modernizing really the systems that allow us to manage the spectrum in the smartest way possible. 
Well, I hope the cities get smart, but we also need smart mayors and city councils to go along with that. I guess not much the NTIA can do there, is there? <laughs> That's true. We can't help on that one now. <laughs> We're speaking with Evelyn Romali. She's a partner at Wilkinson Barker Nauer and former executive at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. And at the time that you left, late last year, there was a comprehensive policy review related to online privacy, copyright protection, cybersecurity, pretty much everything. Is that still going on? So NTIA, as mentioned at the top, it's focus on internet policy and advising the White House and the Secretary of Commerce on that is one of its essential core missions. And so the Internet Policy Task Force is something that the Department of Commerce uses internally to coordinate on internet policy issues that impact many of the agencies within commerce, from NIST to the International Trade Administration. And so we use that function to coordinate. In terms of NTIA's internet policy mission, we continue to work very actively on privacy issues. NTIA earlier this year launched a new inquiry looking at the intersections between privacy, equity, and civil rights. So they're very active on that. On the cybersecurity front, they sunset recently a multi-stakeholder process where they had brought industry and civil society and government administrators into the room to deliberate how to do software supply chain security better. They came up with recommended best practices, all of the stakeholders that worked on that issue, which went into a recent uh, cybersecurity executive order that the Biden administration published in terms of how we can do software security better across the nation. So they continue to be very active on all of these issues. Now with the new NTIA administrator joining Alan Davidson, I think you'll see that internet policy issue area ignited again. I know he has many ideas for where to take NTIA. I think you'll see them moving into other new areas around artificial intelligence, machine-based learning, to continue looking at how you bring the ecosystem together to solve these technology issues, working with the community to do it in a way that we can keep pace with the technology while making sure that the internet stays open, secure, and open for business for these new technologies. So fair to say that the NTIA staff and its different operating units do stay close with industry as much as with government? Absolutely. And industry and civil society as well are really the key stakeholders that NTIA works with in terms of its policy development and analysis process. You know, always looking for that way to balance uh, a very vibrant digital economy with the types of best practices and approaches that we can put in place to make sure that we have an internet ecosystem, you know, that we can trust, that is treating citizens' data appropriately, that is secure from cyber threats. So the way that they do that is that they bring all stakeholders together to deliberate what joint practices can be adopted to keep that ecosystem safe and secure and trusted. And just a quick question on the digital divide, a question that goes back at least to the Clinton administration when the first web browser got published. Uh, Coincidentally, it was not Al Gore. It was the Netscape Foundation. But nevertheless, that's when it came out. And would it be accurate to say that the digital divide 
still exists, but it's not as if those that are on the wrong side of it have zero like they had in 1995, but maybe they just have not kept up with the best of broadband available to the urban and high population areas. On this issue of the digital divide, I would say that what we learned during the last two and a half years, uh, during the pandemic, is that what we have in this country is not just a digital divide. We really had a digital chasm. And of course, we at NTIA knew that this was still an issue across the nation. We've been committed and working on this for decades to get more Americans connected. But I think it wasn't until the pandemic that it became much more apparent uh, to many others that we had citizens who couldn't get to work. They could not interact with a doctor. Children could not get their homework done. They couldn't get to school because they did not have connectivity during the pandemic. You know, many of us are on our phones constantly all day working, uh, managing our lives. Of course, during that time, that was our lifeline. And so we know now how many were left behind. So NTIA very much, the Biden administration as well, a very committed Congress as well, especially through the recent broadband and infrastructure, the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, to make sure that we are investing to ensure that every American has access to high-speed internet. Evelyn Romali is a partner at the Wilkinson Barker Nauer Law Firm and former executive at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, part of the Commerce Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it's such a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for inviting me today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.